Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's go to someone who's been here longer than the first day. That would be Diana Omoa. Thrilled that she could join us with J.P. Morgan Asset Management today. Diana, if you were writing a research note for a dummy like me today, as Mr. Farrow just mentions, what's the salient point indicated by yield right now? What's the yield thing that our listeners need to know about? They are saying that um, the Fed needs to act, and they need to act um into a deeper cutting cycle. So I think um, John's actually nailed it. It's this sense that if they're waiting for uncertainties to be resolved, come July, if those uncertainties aren't resolved, they might start to look as if they're behind the curve. And I think the bond market is starting to price that in a bit. Are Are we really, when everything's said and done here with the oddities of GDP and growth, are we really setting ourselves up for a Bruce Kasman economy? I mean, even though the Fed won't admit it, is the zeitgeist now a U.S. 1.5%, except nobody will talk about it? Well, you can't discount that, given where bonds deals are globally, right? We have an increasing stock of negative yielding bonds um, once more. We have ECB indicating that they're willing to go further into negative rates. You have the BOJ, again, starting to state that they're willing to consider all tools in the context of what's happening externally, so beyond the mm-hmm. U.S. economy, I think a low bond yield environment is actually here for now. Yeah, well, as Ms. Omoa says, John, I was wrong. You were right. So why don't you... We should it, cut you know, that and replay it every morning and put it in a highlight reel. Diana, it's great to have you with us on the program. You run an EM fund. You're in and out of the market. That's why I love talking to you about what is happening in emerging markets right now. There is a belief that people will be starved for income. They will be pushed to go elsewhere. Dana, will they be pushed to go back into EM in a more pronounced way than maybe we have seen over the last 12 months? I think they will. Um, We've already seen a lot of money coming back into um, the hard currency, so sovereign hard currency debt in the last few months. What we're starting to see now is, um, with the dollar turning, a lot more interest in local markets. So that's been the bit that's been lagging flows um, because of we've come from an eight-year dollar bull, bull trend. I think that as, as the belief that we've seen the peak in the dollar builds momentum, investors will look beyond uh, dollar-denominated assets and to those emerging market economies that need to be cutting rates where you still get paid a decent pickup in yield. Um, I think for me, it's just pretty much a no-brainer if you think the dollar has peaked. What kind of yield can we pick up at the moment, Diana, in local currency? So the index level yield is about 5.8%. But then within that, these stories, um, you can go to a market like South Africa where you're getting paid close to 10% on the longer end of the curve. Um, On a story that's still decent, um, you can look at places like Mexico, which I think is really interesting right now. Um, Historically, the Mexican rate the rate curve would move one-to-one with the Fed. They haven't really done that yeah. this time around because of what's been happening with the trade. So I think that's probably one that could reply, reprice quite aggressively. Um, and you get paid around 7.5-8% to own Mexican wow. bonds. Diana, very quickly, the equity market, so many people feel so behind the rally. What's the mood in the bond market? Are people, do they feel way behind what the indices are doing? Um. 
I'd say generally fixed income investors have traded this rally well um, because we came in quite cautious into the start of the year. Um, I think the disconnect is equities are rallying um, and bonds are rallying, but for you know you'd expect these things to move in different directions. Um, so everyone came into the year cautious, equities kept going, equities investors feel they've missed that. We came in cautious, we were long duration, and that trade has worked out yeah. nicely. Dynamo, thank you so much. Dana, Greatly thank you. appreciate J.P. Morgan. But right now, we want to pause on investment. If you are behind, if you're looking at indices, the markets, I'm looking at SPX right now, year to date, up um, when I got market cap. Where did that? Somebody's been playing with my screen. Um, you okay you know, over there? I'm falling apart. Year to date, up 17% on Big SPX. Whale. This is the interview of the day. William Smead buys value. He is in the 90th percentile plus across all sorts of timelines. He's hitting the ball out of the hedge fund park. He joins us now from our studios in London. Bill Smead, let's back up and look at it. How did you perform so well? How are you garnering double-digit performance where so many others are falling behind? Well, I, I thank you very much for the kindness. The, the, the main thing that we're doing, I think, different – than most of the value community is most value buyers go in and try to buy a 50 cent dollar. And then in the next year and a half, if it goes up to 90 cents, they sell it automatically. We're trying to buy outstanding companies when they get to be a 50 cent dollar and then hope to hold them for a long, long time. And if there's anything that's helped in the last 10 years, it's holding your winners to a fault. So that, that, that's, that's a blessing. Once in a great while, you'll round trip a stock. You'll, you'll buy it at 50, it'll go to 100, and it'll go all the way back to 50. But yeah, most John of the, Farrow does that all the time. Most, most <clears throat> of the time, the mathematics of common stock investing are that when you're wrong, you can only lose 100% of what you put in if you paid cash. But if you're right, you can go up many times your money, and those three and five and seven and 10 baggers make a huge difference over a 10-year time frame. Jen Farrell, what he just said there, you can take down to people trading five-minute intervals or five-year interviews. It, we heard this the other day. It's incredibly important to let your winners go. Remember the rebalancing interview we had with a gentleman? From yeah, a Federated? number of weeks ago. Yeah, I remember that. Steve, uh, he's, he's on your property. Chevron. Chevron. Steve Chevron nailed Bill Smead 101. So, Bill, let's talk about the Smead Value Fund. It's got about a billion dollars in assets just north of that. You've returned around about 15% year to date. And what you guys do is pick 15, 25 to 30 companies, rather. So, 25 to 30 companies within that portfolio. Bill, talk to me about why that's the optimal number for you guys in that fund. Really good question. Uh, I think 93% of the benefit of diversification and common stock ownership comes with the 20th security. So we have o over 50% of our portfolio in the top 10. Think of us as a producer of a play or a producer of movies. We audition actors and actresses uh, based on our eight criteria for common stock selection. If they enter the portfolio, then in the first three years, they're basically on probation to see what kind of audience they can draw. 
and you move up the ladder in our portfolio by your success because we let our winners run. So you might think, and typically we might start right. with a, two, a 2% position and maybe go up to three if we have a lot of confidence. And then five or six years later, if you've been successful, you might work right. your way up into the top 10. How does that strategy work in a legitimate correction plus moving to a bear market? Forget about the gloom and negative 35%. What is the elasticity of your portfolio if you're down 17% SPX? Wonderful question. It's uh, my only good one of the day, Bill. Yeah, enjoy it. Yeah. So, so our eight criteria for common stock selection are mostly qualitative. So wide moat, long history of profitability, consistently high free cash flow, shareholder friendliness, strong balance sheet, uh, et cetera. So most of the eight criteria are qualitative. When you get in difficult markets and they're virtually guaranteed to come, those qualitative characteristics allow you to be patient in that environment. By the way, since you asked it, the other thing that's really helped us the last three to five years uh, is we're back to what we used to be before the 07 to 09 debacle. Because in 07 to 09, the normal qualitative things did not protect you because the hedge funds had to sell what they could sell because they couldn't sell what they couldn't sell. And since they, they, they had to sell what they could sell, we owned what they could sell. Now, on the decline in August through December of last year, we outperformed. In, the, in May, when the market fell sharply, we outperformed. We're back to the normal historical ability of quality or dividend yield to defend you on the downside, which is, makes us very excited for the future because we're very positive about what we're doing the price earnings ratio discount to the S&P yeah. is among the highest we've had. Uh, but but we're also conscious of the fact that the chart of the day for Bloomberg is momentum has blistered value uh, and, and momentum is due for a come up in some time in the next year or two. So, Bill, let's talk about where the opportunities are right now for you guys. You aren't buying small caps that people have never heard of. You're buying large caps. So walk me through a couple of names and, and why you like these companies right now. Well, let's just uh, be in the news. Uh, CBS is talking about getting remarried to Viacom. And there are there's some rumors out there that they would like very much for David Zasloff that runs Discovery Inc. to, to run a, a three-headed monster yeah. ra- rather than the two-headed monster. We, we don't necessarily think that's a great idea because the big behemoth market capitalization companies, the Amazons and Apples and, and uh, Netflix, their biggest problem is they're, they're just pretenders in content. They're just pretending that they're content producers. And, and the best uh, profit margins in the entire industry are unscripted television. Uh, and and uh, I might add that Joseph... Unscripted Joseph, radio the, the, as well, the, Mr. Smead. That's right. Inter- Intercom, the guy that, that run, the main owner of Intercom is loading the boat. He's buying up every okay. every share of Intercom he can. So he yeah. agrees with you completely. Okay. So unscripted television has 10% of the cost of, 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 uh, of uh, scripted TV and movies. And so here are these tech companies who are loaded with confidence, loaded with arrogance, and they're spending money in Hollywood like drunken sailors on leave when the truth of it is they could pay $70 a share to buy the premier uh, content uh, in television, which is HGTV, Food Network, Travel Channel, Deadliest Catch, Shark Week, ID. Okay, Bill. I got time, Bill. You're on a roll, Bill. I got what it's Bloomberg Surveillance Bill. SURV. We're doing a direct listing. Bill, I got time for one more question. 
What are the hedge funds getting wrong? You are one of the most humble guys I've ever met. You're truly, folks, clocking David Harrow numbers. You're like 92 percentile, 96 percentile. All these smart guys off Madison Avenue and Mayfair are getting crushed. What are they doing wrong? Well, there's there, there are thousands of people that want to make money in six to 12 month durations. And they all have access to massive computer power. And the problem is the laws of supply and demand haven't changed. There's hardly anyone that wants to work in five to 10 year durations. Thank you. And, and so by we've been left the five to 10 year duration right. to a few other players. And there's not much okay. there. Now, the negative is the capital uh, should be coming to us, and that has not been the case. Uh, th- there's net outflows even among meritorious yeah, yeah, we heard that. strategies. We heard that yesterday. Yeah. 20 yeah. seconds, Carl Icahn, OxyDarko. Anna Darko overpaid by Oxy. Did you look at that transaction? Uh, we're, we're researching it, and uh, uh, by the way, Icon's right. been following us around for the last oh, five or please, six years on eBay on. and others. Uh, it, it, yeah, Car- uh, we, Carl's we, out in Central Park with his two dogs walking around. He's not following Bill Smead. Uh, he, you think he's, he's following you? No, just kidding. He he happened to be an uh, activist in a number of stocks that we already owned. So yeah. uh, the the bottom line is, uh, since value looks extremely attractive relative to momentum, right? Uh, I I don't think they overpaid. For Anadarko. Thank you, Bill Smead. Greatly appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Bill. Huge response. If you're an economist, without question, the easy thing to do as a market economist is to blame your bond guys, blame your equity guys. Janet Henry is professional at not doing this because her bond guys and her equity guys have been on the edge of perfect. No one combined has had a bond equity house call like the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation in the last, I'm going to say, eight months. She'll tell me to the month, maybe longer than that. The Steve Major, Ben Laidler tandem has been lights out. Janet, what is it like to work with those guys? How did they influence Laidler's optimism on equity? Steve Major nailing lower interest rates. What does that do to shape your forecast day to day? Well, Tom, we all talk to each other. You know, and I think the economic view for the last few years, especially the lower for longer call, we work very closely with Steve Major. We've been of the view for the last five years that the pickup in wage growth was going to be very slow and very gradual for a number of reasons to do with labor market disruption. Now, I must admit, over the last year or so, the, the kind of optimism on bonds and optimism on equities seem to sit a little oddly. And to be honest, yeah. over the last few weeks, I've been surprised myself at the extent to which everything's good news for the equity market. If the Fed's cutting rates because things are going wrong. That's good news for equities. Um, but if we get a trade deal, that's good news for equities. Um, whereas the bond market um, obviously is much more right. skewed towards the downside risks on global growth. Does the traditional punch bowl model work? And if it is, where's the punch bowl right now? Overflowing onto the floor? Um, I think it's, it's 
It's difficult. Um, you know, as going into the meeting yesterday um, of the Fed, it was how can the Fed outdove the market? What could they possibly do? Um, you know, we thought maybe if they cut rates in June, the market may be even happier. But it was almost the perfect set um, of dots. It, it's basically, you know, suggesting that, that most of the Fed, uh, well, you know, nearly half of the Fed is now ready to cut rates by 50 basis points this year. But there's no pre-commitment um, to actually do it. Their growth numbers were good. They were not downgraded. They were edged up. Yeah. The unemployment rate was edged down, but we seem to be now on their projections in this perfect world um, where they're about to cut interest rates because inflation's lower than expected. Are we so, too- yeah, I think there's a lot of optimism uh, yeah. priced into the equity market. Are we too close to a liquidity trap or is it something different this time? Let's say things um, fall apart. It's three... premature. Oh, yeah, okay, it's premature. I get it. But it's radio. Come on, stay with me here. It's premature. I get that. But if we get one, two, nobody's looking for it. But what if it happens? Three rate cuts. Are we right back to where we were in 08, 09, 10? I think a liquidity trap is when no one is borrowing, no matter how low or negative interest rates right. go. It's very clear that the corporate sector has been borrowing in the U.S. for the last few years, and we've seen the, the resurgence in mortgage refinancing in the U.S. as long-term interest rates have come down. I don't think the U.S. is in a liquidity trap. I think what the U.S. is seeing is that, it, of course, inflation in the U.S. is influenced by global developments, and that was a lot of what we heard yesterday. Right. It was about global uncertainties, global PMIs, and they matter too. What are uncertainties? To me, they are less data dependent, less uh, function, less reaction function, and much more things, tangible like trade and trade war. Is that what we mean by modern uncertainties? Uh, I think, yeah, trade is a big part of it. And, you know, a lot of the slow, the way in which trade has impacted, the trade trade wars has impacted over the last year has been on investments. So we've seen a slowdown in demand for capital goods. We've also seen particular things related to the auto sector and to the semiconductor sector. Industry is very weak. And the longer industry is weak, the greater the likelihood that that does feed through into employment and into consumer spending, which, let's be honest, is the real area of resilience, even in the euro area. Area um, over the course of the last year. Consumer spending um, has still been pretty solid because unemployment rates and wage growth is now at the highest level for a decade. Okay, wage growth is at the highest level, but a lot of America feels the angst. This is a really interesting point, Jen, Henry, that there's a part of America not participating, and there's another part, which Chairman Powell mentioned yesterday, where, you know, consumer data is pretty good, service sector is pretty good, et cetera. Is that going to be the surprise? staggering to September 18th, whatever that two meetings out is, is that we still get good consumer data? Maybe we get okay unemployment numbers? Yes, I think, well, that's already in the Fed's central forecast to some degree. Yes. Of course, we've just had another solid initial jobless claims. It fell to a new lower level. So I think what the Fed was saying yesterday is that, you know, the, the lower the unemployment falls, the greater the likelihood that more and more people who've not so far benefited from the recovery do start to benefit. But it would appear that just a continuation of the solid consumer data is not enough yeah. for the Fed to remain on hold. It is still that global weakness um, and what it means for global inflation and therefore U.S. inflation will be ultimately okay. what tips the balance for the Fed if it cuts rates. So, Janet Henry, you're saying without question, Jerome Powell's central banker to the world. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, yes. 
Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, and remember last year, it was a lot of the Fed tightening on the back of strong US growth, which was helped along by fiscal stimulus. But it was that yeah. Fed tightening that impacted on the rest of the world and contributed to the slowdown in growth elsewhere in the world. My first question to Vice Chairman Clarida tomorrow has to be on his word, solid. I, I associate that with the Vice Chairman. We heard Chairman Powell talk about solid yesterday. What would be your question, Janet Andrew, for the Vice Chairman? Uh, my my question um, for the vice chairman is, uh, well, I, I suppose a lot of it would still be to do with um, the labour market. And this is something that Richard Faraday talked about in his recent speech. You know, economists always talk about the stars. It's all in the stars. The R star, the neutral rate. Um, and U star is the new thing, the, 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 the maximum level of employment. They don't know what that is. Um, Faraday actually mentioned that it would be, he now thinks it's, you know, around 4% possibly below. We're already below yeah. um, 4%. How low does he think unemployment right. will go and in the U.S. without wage growth picking up um, more yeah. Janet, I'm going to give you a shout out if I get to that question with Vice Chairman Clarida. But this is important, folks. And, and, and Janet Henry, this is just so key. Is you star in this dream of a perfect unemployment rate, is it tangible on an aggregated basis or are we so polarized that we have two or even three Americas and we really can't get there even if we'd want to get there? It is, but also it matters for how this whole expansion plays out. You know, we've become used to over the last few decades of most um, Fed tightening cycles being a response to higher than expected inflation. They have to squeeze inflation out of the system. That requires a sharper slowdown. If we're now back in this world, whereas, you know, you're alluding to, you've got different parts of the labor market seeing some pick up in wage growth. If that's coming through more through the profit cycle, yeah. it's back to an old fashioned business cycle. You could see different parts of the economy um, yeah. being affected in a different way. And that means that it's, it's not necessarily just about the response to inflation, but we could still get areas of the economy slowing down because they're the parts that are being hit more on the profit side. This has been wonderful. Jenna Henry, thank you so much. She's with HSBC. Shira Overday, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things technology. Really wanted to get her thoughts on Slack. Uh, that company's uh, raising capital today. I should note, Tom, that uh, Bloomberg Beta, the venture capital arm of Bloomberg LP, is an investor in oh, Slack. So we'll make that disclosure. Thank you. Yep. Um, so, again, Slack raising capital. Can you just give a walk us through kind of what's happening today? Who's raising capital? Is it how this you know, listing, this direct listing is different from an IPO. Well, the way it's different is that they're actually not raising capital. The company's not raising capital. The company's cap right. not raising capital. So basically, you know, Slack o over the years as a private company has issued about 500 million shares in its lifetime. And basically today it declares those 500 million shares are in essence, available for trade. So the company is not selling new shares uh, to to a new crop of investors, as typically ha happens in an IPO. It simply decides today's the day that we become a public company, and it makes shares available for trade. So people who previously owned Slack shares when the company was private are now able, in principle at least, to um, to sell those shares to willing buyers, and buyers are going to line up 
potentially, to purchase those shares, and we'll see what happens. How many of 500 million will end up in new hands? It's a good question. So it's part of the good. issue with a direct listing, right, is that it's a little bit less controlled than an IPO. So it's not like the company can say, Oh, we determine on. that 30 million we're shares will trade. Like, we're among friends yeah. here. Yeah. It's not controlled. It's manipulated. In yes. what way is it manipulated? <laughs> and in what way is an IPO manipulated? No, or is what this way direct, a direct listing? Oh, well, on. you know. Stop I, it. They're going out to Citadel yes. and Goldman Sachs. Correct. They're making a fictitious pricing up and they're launching this puppy, right? Yes, I agree with you. I do not really see the point yet of direct listings thank you god can we have her back tomorrow (laughs) thank you i mean it's supposed to be this kind of more pure pure. less financially manipulated process than an ipo controlled by the masters of wall street but it's not really that as tom said right the the bank there are bankers that are getting paid tens of millions of dollars in fees by the company and they're going out to people who own shares of slack and saying How about selling some shares? How many are you thinking? What price are you looking for? And it's doing a similar thing to prospective buyers. And those kinds of conversations start to look a lot like what happens in an IPO process, that fake manipulated, controlled by the masters of Wall Street IPO process. So um, to me, right now, a direct listing looks like a solution in search of a problem. But I am open to the possibility that there really is some... Well, the you, big th- again, you already called me a cynic, so now <laughs> yeah. I guess I have to live up to you've that building. You've gone beyond the call of duty. <laughs> one of the ways, again, one of the ways it is different from Slack's perspective is that it's less costly. I mean, the fees are well, lower, presumably. is it though? So, there, again, <laughs> Slack is paying, I, I, I cannot remember the number, but it's something like $25 million in return for raising no new capital, right? So you're paying banker fees, not that much less than you'd pay in an IPO, but the company's not making any money from this process. So again, right now, a direct listing is a novel thing. It probably requires right. a little bit more work than it might in two or three years if this process becomes more normalized. Uh, but right now, a direct listing uh, is know, not cheaper. It, you know, to, to those that, that have been through this, and Shira's expert on this, and we make jokes, folks, but she's truly lights out. It's sort of kind of like a Dutch auction where you go out and find a price. Do we know how they actually get to $26? I, again, I is think... Is it like CFA 101? I, I think a lot of it is very similar to an IPO process, that you have conversations with potential sellers of stock and potential buyers of stock, and you figure out what they're what it seems that they're willing to So they're basically doing an end-around SEC process of a red herring to discover price, which is what you do in a standard initial public offering. Uh, I don't want to say that anyone's violating any rules. You know, no, this I'll is still it. a process. <laughs> this is still a process that is governed by SEC rules. Like, you know, Slack filed a prospectus as they would in an IPO. Um, I didn't know that. Thing. They have, yep. You know, they have regulated conversations with potential investors. So this is all on the up and up. But again, the my issue is just that this is supposed to be some kind of holier than thou more pure process than an ipo and i do not yet see those merits can we ask one question about the actual company today oh the yeah. company yes what makes now this is a you know there's so much remote working today and you got to have these video conferences and, and bloomberg's got its own system which works great um what makes this company so special their technology 
Look, Slack, it, it is good technology, and it's particularly useful on mobile devices, which was less true of many of its predecessors. But I will say, I, I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday about Slack and the fact that there were a number of very similar software companies that started around the same time as Slack. Think about companies like Yammer, which was bought by Microsoft, or Jive Software, a company that went public mm -hmm. um, a few years ago, or Chatter, which is owned by Salesforce. Cisco had a workplace chat product. There were lots of these kind of Facebook for work, whatever you want to call them, products, and almost all of them either died or well, essentially irrelevant. In the journal today, sure, they had that great compare and contrast of actually paying subscriptions of 95,000 versus 285 million from Microsoft. I mean, the, the revenue growth vectors are declining. The, yes. gro the down the income statement vectors are declining. Let's, let's flip it over. I'm gung-ho on Slack. Why? Well, look, they do have 600,000 paying organizations, which is, you know, not nothing, even maybe it's nothing compared to Microsoft and all of the customers that they have, but this is a software that has caught on relatively quickly in a relatively large number of okay. organizations. The The advantage of software as a service, you know, this kind of subscription software, the reason investors love that business model so much is it's very easy to understand. You have companies paying money every month or every year for a product. You can kind of model it out. You can see the retention rates and the ability to upgrade those customers. Look, investors may have gotten carried away about this whole category of software, but there is something real happening. Okay. There are new kinds of technology that are catching on in companies. Single best conversations today, sure, over days, always. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.